You're listening to the Bonfire Podcast, fanning the flames of the gospel to the ends of the world. Come on, let's dive into the Word. Well, welcome to the Bonfire Podcast, everyone. We are glad that you are joining us for another episode. If this is your first time joining the Bonfire Podcast, we want to say welcome to you and encourage you to come on in and stay a while, listen to what we have to say. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, then we would encourage you to become a subscriber and download our content on a regular basis. We try to release episodes each week on Sunday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you can download those uh, through any of the podcast application. We're pretty much on every one that's out there. Uh, so if you've got a podcast application of choice, you should be able to find us there. For those of you who have been listening to us for quite some time, we do want to express our sincere appreciation uh, for sticking with us and to, to being a regular uh, listener. Uh, we, we'd ask, though, that you do us a favor, that you would maybe this week uh, find someone new uh, to share the Bonefire podcast with, uh, that you'll tell them about us and maybe they would come and listen and that way we can grow the community we can grow the number of people who are diving deep into God's Word. And so, again, just want to thank everyone for listening and, and again, encourage you to uh, share what, you, what you're experiencing here with someone you know. Well, Dad, uh, we are right here in the midst of Holy Week. And uh, we're recording this episode just a few days before Easter. And uh, this episode will actually release on Easter Sunday. And, you know, over the last uh, several years, uh, Holy Week, uh, Easter, has become sweeter to me. And, uh, you know, when I was younger, if someone were to ask me what my favorite holiday was, I would quickly respond uh, with Christmas. And uh, uh, over time, though, Easter has become more real to me. It's become more meaningful to me. Um, maybe it's me just getting older and getting past the the presence and the excitement of Christmas. Um, or maybe it's me growing spiritually and and, and beginning to, to truly see just how in need of a Savior uh, I am, and uh, and I think maybe that's the case. And so Easter holds a, a special place in my heart. And again, it's not about the decorations or the food. You know, those, those are all fun. Um, it's all about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's why I love the, the holiday of Easter and, and what it means and the message behind it is it's all about Jesus. Easter is the time when we celebrate the death, the burial, and most importantly, the resurrection of Jesus. And without Easter, there would be no cure for our sin-sick world. Without Easter, uh, we would have no hope for today or tomorrow. Without Easter, life would have no purpose beyond the here and now. Without Easter, the sting of death would be permanent. Without Easter, Christianity would have no foundation. Mm -hmm. I found an interesting uh, quote here that Dr. Billy Graham once told Time magazine. He said, if I were an enemy of Christianity, I would aim right at the resurrection because that is the heart of Christianity. Mm-hmm. I would agree with Dr. Graham. Easter and the resurrection story is the very heart of Christianity. You know, Dad, I spent a lot of time over the, the last week or so kind of pouring through the gospel accounts, looking at the events that led up to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And as I read and I studied this week, I was captivated by reading about Jesus being on trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, following Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was brought before um, Annas and, and uh, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and Herod and, and Pilate. Mm-hmm. I think in total there was about six trials that occurred um, over the course of the, the several hours after Jesus' arrest. And as Jesus stood on trial, uh, false accusations were made about our Lord, yet Jesus offered no rebuttal at all. 
Mm-hmm. And I found that interesting. That's right. You know, most of us, if we were accused of something we didn't do, we would be very quick to try and clear our name. Mm-hmm. But Jesus, in, in most cases, just stood there quiet, mm-hmm. listening to what was being said about him and didn't didn't fight back. In the reading of these accounts this week, something stood out to me uh, that, that just really uh, hit me uh, in, in my heart as I, as I thought about it. During the uh, Pilate's interrogation of Jesus, Pilate asked a pointed question of Jesus. He said, are you a king then? And this is the one of the few times Jesus replied. And he replied, he said, you say rightly that I am a king. If you got your Bible, I'd encourage you to look at, at John 18, 37. We'll see uh, this verse and, and, and watch it play out in Scripture. It says, Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? And Jesus answered, you say rightly, I am a king. Listen to this. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world. And I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. You know, what's unfortunate is that Pilate didn't understand the royalty that stood before him that very day. Jesus is a king, and, and what a king he is. But he's not just any king. He is the king. And what I find interesting, Dad, is all throughout Scripture we see references to Jesus' royalty. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it would be fitting for us to take some time today to, to look at and address Pilate's question by looking at what the Bible has to say about our King Jesus and his royal titles. Right. And so I want us to dive in deeply and look at all the things that Jesus is king of. And I think you've got the first one that you can share with us here, Dad. That's right. Jesus in the Bible is declared to be, first of all, the king of the Jews. Now, he is referred to as the king of the Jews in his earthly life in two different occasions. Number one, at his birth by the wise men. Now, over in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, we read where the wise men came asking, Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So early on in the life of Jesus, he was considered by the wise men to be the king of the Jews. But now the second time Jesus is referred to as the king of the Jews is, as you were saying, Matt, at the time of Jesus' trial and crucifixion. Referring back to what you said earlier, during the trial of Jesus, Pilate had asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, It is as you say. Now, after the conversation about Jesus's kingship, Pilate, he turns to the crowd and he asks, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? In no uncertain terms, the crowd shouts their answer, not this man, but Barabbas. Pilate then allows the soldiers to give Jesus a beating during which they clothe Jesus as a king, mock him with cries of hell, king of the Jews, and repeatedly slap Jesus in the face. After the mockery, Pilate again presents Jesus to the crowd as the king of the Jews, saying, here is your king. And in response, they shout, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And then he asked, shall I crucify your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. And that's what the chief priests answered. Now, their choice had been made, and Jesus, their true king, the real king of the Jews, 
was led away to be crucified. Now, you know, as I think about this, there were definitely people that rejected the kingship of Jesus as the king of the Jews. But not all people did. Some people during Jesus' ministry recognized Jesus as the true king of the Jews. As Jesus neared Jerusalem the final time, this is prior to his arrest and his trial and crucifixion, uh, he entered Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday that marked the beginning of the week of Passion. As Jesus neared Jerusalem this final time on a donkey, the crowd with him thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. In other words, they believed Jesus was the king of the Jews, and they were ready to help him set up the earthly kingdom. And of course, they were thinking more of a political kingdom. Now, Jesus told a parable indicating that the kingdom, the kingdom they were thinking about, would be delayed, but the crowd's enthusiasm did not wane. As he entered Jerusalem, Jesus was greeted with shouts of welcome for the king of the Jews, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So yes, people rejected his kingship, and it led to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But people also accepted and received him as their king. Now, what qualifications did Jesus have for being the king of the Jews? Certainly, if he is the king of the Jews, he had to meet a certain criteria. Well, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, starts out by saying, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, here we see the royal lineage all the way back to the nation's inception in the Abrahamic covenant. Matthew is showing us in this verse that if you're going to be the king of the Jews, you must be a descendant of David. Now, this royal origin goes all the way back to 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, God told the prophet Nathan to say to King David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Jesus is also said of Matthew to be not only the son of David, but the son of Abraham. Abraham, the first Jew, and Jesus being a descendant of him, establishes Jewish identity, and that Jesus was, in fact, an Israelite. Now, over in Genesis 17, 5 and 6, God says to Abraham, But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Now, these verses that I just read recalls the promises God made to both David and Abraham. At the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus Christ as the, as the descendant of the father of Israel, Abraham, and the great king of Israel, David. So yes, Jesus, he was the king of the Jews. He, he met the criteria, the qualifications for being the king of the Jews. Many rejected him, but thank God some accepted him.
That's right, Dad. And not only is Jesus King of the Jews, but he's also the King of Righteousness. If you got your Bible, turn over to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2. Uh, sorry, we're actually going to look at verse 1 and 2. And uh, let's, let's read that together. It says, For this Melchizedek, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. You know, Dad, what I like about the book of Hebrew is if you think about the book of Hebrews and you tried to summarize it in one word, that one word would be better. The whole book is is written to not necessarily the New Testament church. It's actually written to Jews. It was written, that's why it's called Hebrews. And it was written to show them that Jesus is a better alternative. Mm-hmm. And uh, all throughout the book, uh, the writer of Hebrews is trying to explain to the Jewish people how Jesus is better than the law, better than the Levitical priesthood, better than he's a better sacrifice. He's better than everything that they know. And in part of writing here, the, the writer of Hebrews compares Jesus to Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek's an interesting character. He occurs only twice in the Old Testament. He occurs over in Genesis, and then there's a reference to him, um, I believe, again, over in, um, in Psalms. And then, again, we see him here in the book of Hebrews. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is Melchizedek, he was notable because he held the priesthood and a king at the same time. Right. And at that right. time, it was it was not that there was royalty as a king and a priest at the same time. And so the writer of Hebrews was sharing that uh, Jesus was compared to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is actually uh, a prefigure of Jesus. A theophany. That's right. Uh, he was foreshadowing of, of Jesus. And so when you look at Melchizedek on the Old Testament, he was a picture of what Christ would be in the future. And so the writer here is reminding us that as Melchizedek's name means the king of righteousness, Jesus is the true king of righteousness. That's right. He's the true king of righteousness. And what does it mean to be righteous? Well, righteous means to be made right or to be whole, and, and particularly in terms of biblical terms, is to be, be made right and whole with God. Mm-hmm. And so everything that Jesus does, he is the king of righteousness. He is right, he is true, and he is whole with God. This verse also tells us the second or the third, rather, uh, royal title that we see Jesus has. Has, and that is the King of Peace. The writer of Hebrews uh, tells us that Melchizedek's name also uh, means King of Salem, and that means King of Peace. Even more so is Jesus the King of Peace. I found it interesting, Dad, that if you look at righteousness and peace, they're oftentimes found together in Scripture. Think about this. As we look and, and, and read this verse here, it says, And the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. That's Isaiah thirty-two seventeen. Or how about this one? Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That's Psalms eighty-five ten. In his day shall the righteous flourish in abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. That's Psalm 72, 7. But for wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them who make peace. That's James three seventeen through 18. True peace can only be experienced 
on the basis of righteousness. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's fitting to me that Jesus is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. You know, what's interesting, Dad, is um, people are always in search for peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen recent polls, uh, particularly in these trying times that we're in economically and just with the unrest in the world, um, there is a, a hope for peace, mm-hmm. and uh, there is no peace like can be found in the King of Peace, and that's Jesus. Right. And so I, I think it's fitting. Again, he's the King of Righteousness. He's the King of Peace, but he's also King over all the earth. That's right. The The title, King over all the earth, is found near the end of the Old Testament when the prophet Zechariah says in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 4 and verses 8 and 9. And in that day, his feet, talking about the feet of Jesus when he returns, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. Now this scripture refers to the time known as the millennial reign of Christ. Now during this time, There will be only one religion in the entire world. Christ will have done away with all the false religions spawned by Satan. Christ is king over all the people of the earth. And you know what? Christ is also king over all the earth. Now, in the years uh, 1014 through 1035, there ruled over England a Danish king named Canute. King Canute. Tired of hearing his retainers flatter him with extravagant praises of his greatness, power, and invincibility. He ordered his chair to be set down on the seashore where he commanded the waves not to come in and wet him. No matter how forcefully he ordered the tide not to come in, however, his order was not obeyed. Soon the waves lapped around his chair. One historian tells us that he never wore his crown again, but hung it on a statue of the crucified Christ. Now, ladies and gentlemen that's out there listening in podcast land, you just know that Jesus, he is the king over all the earth, over all the peoples on the earth and over the earth itself. That's right, Dad. Not only is Jesus king over all the earth, he's also the king of glory. Let's take a look at the 24th Psalm. It reads, The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell within it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessings from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. This, Jacob, the generation of those 
who seek him, who seek your face. Selah. Listen to this, verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now, Dad, I love this psalm. And and to be honest with you, I haven't read this psalm in quite some time until I was uh, studying and looking at this King of glory. And just it's a great uh, inspirational um, uh, psalm here about the King of glory and his kingdom. Now, that phrase, King of glory, I had to go back and look and, and look at the Hebrew and understand exactly what King of Glory is. That word glory is kabod in, in the original Hebrew, and that word has a lot of meaning in Hebrew. It means majesty, splendor, riches, reputation, dignity. If I were to use maybe some of today's language, it would be awesomeness mm-hmm. was what it is. When used figuratively, that word means weight or heaviness. Mm-hmm. The psalmist who is writing here is talking about opening up gates, raising the doors higher. The imagery that the the uh, psalmist is giving us here is that you have to make room to get the glory of God in through the door. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just amazing here to talk about how how much majesty, majesty, how much splendor, how much richness the Lord has, and, and, and Jesus is the King of glory. Back in Exodus, there's a term about the Shekinah glory uh, mm-hmm. that, that is mentioned there, and the Shekinah glory was uh, this large presence of God that would hover over the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy right. of Holies. It was like a cloud, mm-hmm. and many believe that the King, uh, King David, as he was writing this psalm, that he was thinking back about this cloud that would consume uh, the, the Holy of Holy space where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he, he said he's the King of glory, uh-huh. meaning there's no one more awesome, there's no king that has more splendor than Jesus, who is the King of glory. And that's just an amazing thought today, is, mm-hmm. is that Jesus is the King of glory, and exactly what that means. Dad, but not only is he the King of glory, he's also the King of kings and the Lord of lords, which may be my uh, most favorite title of all. Yeah, that's right. The title King of kings and Lord of lords is the ultimate designation to our Lord. A look at the biblical passages that speak of Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords offers a lot of insight regarding the meaning of these phrases. Now, the phrase King of Kings is used three times in relation to Jesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, we read, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Now, here, uh, Jesus is called King of Kings along with other titles to show his unique and perfect role as God. He is noted clearly as divine and of greater power than any other ruler. Now, over in Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, we read, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Again, the title King of kings and Lord of lords is used to emphasize the power 
and the authority of Jesus. Now, the same emphasis is seen in Revelation 19, 16, that says of Jesus, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The phrase Lord of lords is used twice in the Old Testament even to refer to God. Over in Psalm 136, verse 3, we read, Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. The emphasis is on a perfect Lord, here including the aspect of faithful love that endures for all time. But now over in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, we read, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Again, the emphasis is on the power and might of the Lord. No other compares to him. Now, I want you to note in that last scripture verse I read, the connection between God of gods and Lord of lords. Every Jewish reader would see that calling Jesus Lord of lords was an affirmation of his deity because in the Old Testament, the connection that was made with Lord of Lords and God of Gods. It is clear that the use of King of Kings and Lord of Lords in connection with Jesus highlights His supreme power, rule, and authority. No one, no earthly king, compares with His strength or ability to lead. Now, some people think that the world evolves around them, that they will find out different one day. (laughs) Did you know the United States once had an emperor? Believe it or not, it's true, at least. It was in the rather confused mind of Joshua A. Norton. Norton lived in San Francisco during the gold rush days of the 1800s. He was a colorful character, to say the least. When speculation in the rice market brought him to financial ruin, something happened to Norton's mind. He declared himself emperor of the United States. It might have been a practical joke, or it might have been the result of a clouded mind. Whatever the initial reason, Norton's pretending soon grew into a delusion. In 1859, he published a proclamation that he was emperor according to an act of the California legislature. He found a sword, stuck a plume in his hat, found a cape, marched the streets in a colorful costume. The citizens of San Francisco were amused by this ploy and so played the game with him. They gave him recognition with free tickets to special events. He was invited to gala opening nights. In fact, they allowed him to collect a small tax and issue his own currency. It was all done in the spirit of fun. But to Newton, it was serious business. In fact, he expanded his authority to emperor of the United States and protector of Mexico. When he died in 1880, more than 10,000 curious people attended Norton's funeral service, one of the largest funerals ever to take place in California. He lived and died in his own delusion of grandeur. He didn't hurt anyone. In fact, he brought a bit of smile and chuckle to people who came across his path. But make no mistake about it, Joshua A. Norton was never really the emperor. Had he really insisted on a confrontation with the United States government, he would have been disposed of rather quickly. 
more than likely he would have been confined to an insane asylum for the rest of his life. Imagine the poor soul who enters eternity, convinced that life was all about him, that he was the focus of the universe. What a shock to find that the Bible's title for Jesus is accurate. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and no pretend emperor will ever take his place. That's exactly right, Dad. I was uh, thinking about um, these titles, and, and there's one more uh, that came to my mind, and that is uh, that Jesus is the king of me. Mm-hmm. He's my king. And right. uh, as my king, what I like is uh, you can't impeach him, you can't vote him out of office, and he's not going to resign. He, he's my king. Right. And I, and I want to... Uh, to just know today, as we're answering this question, we're looking at Pilate's question, uh, which is, are you a king? But probably the better question for our podcast audience to think about, is Jesus your king? Right. Have you made Jesus king in your life? Is as is, is Jesus uh, Lord of your life? And so I, I would encourage you, I can't think of a better time than here in the Easter season to, to think about, have you truly made uh, Jesus king in your life and giving your life over to him. The Easter story is is such a precious story. Uh, God created humans to to be in one with him, to be communing with him, and to have fellowship with him when he first made uh, the first man and the first woman uh, back in the Garden of Eden. But sin came into our world. And when sin came into our world, that broke that perfect relationship. Uh, that, that sin came in and put a wedge between God and man, and no longer could man be made whole and right with God because of sin being in the way. God is a, a holy God. He's He can't tolerate sin because sin is evil. And so there needed to be a, a, a price that was paid for sin. And our Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. That means to satisfy sin, you have to die. There has to be shedding of blood. And uh, all men were cursed into uh, the, this curse of sin and ultimately a penalty of death because of what happened there in the fall of man. But God, through his infinite wisdom and his mercy and his grace, he made a way that we could be made right. He made a way that our sin debt could be paid. And he sent Jesus uh, to be our, our payment for our sin. Jesus took off. We're talking about his royalty. He took off his royal robes in heaven, and he stepped down into humanity, put on the cloak of humanity. And he came and he lived among man. And he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. He never did anything that would cause people to to be uh, hateful and and wrong to him. But they did. They hated him. And they they cursed him. And they wanted to see him dead. And the Bible tells us that uh, God made him that knew no sin to become sin for us and to ultimately be the, the what the Bible says is the propitiation for sin, to satisfy that sin debt. So Jesus willingly went to an old cross, and they took nails, they drove it into his hands, they drove it into his feet, and uh, there on top of Calvary's hill, as he gasped for breath and he shed his blood, he paid your price, he paid my price, Uh, he paid the sin debt for the world. I like to think that that cross and that hill where Jesus died, it was a three-dimensional transaction. It went back in time. It went forward in time. It covers all of my sin in the past and all of my sin in the future was paid right there at Calvary as he gave his life. But the beautiful thing about 
the Easter story is that Jesus, he didn't just come and he just didn't die to pay the penalty for our sin. He was put in a borrowed tomb. He lay there dead for three days. And then by his own power, uh, on that third day, he came back to life and he conquered death and he conquered sin. And because of Easter, because of the story that we're, we're, we're talking about here today, we not only got the, the penalty for death uh, and for sin paid for us, but we also got victory over sin and death and the gift of eternal life. Mm-hmm. And so today I ask you, is, is Jesus your king? Have you made Jesus king of your life? And you may be wondering, well, how exactly do I do that? It's, it's a very easy process. But first, you have to understand that you're in need of a Savior, you're in need of a king. Mm-hmm. You have to realize that in and of yourself, you're not righteous. Uh, your righteousness is like filthy rags mm-hmm. compared to the righteousness of God. And you understand that there's no way that you can be, be made right without there being help. And that's the first step. Once you've realized that you're in need of a Savior, you have to call on Jesus to be your Savior and say, Jesus, I believe in you, and I believe in what you did on Calvary, and I accept the finished work of Calvary and what you did for me. And then you turn from all the wickedness and the evilness in your life, and you you walk in righteousness and work to serve God and live for God each and every day. And I promise you, if you go through those steps, then uh, you'll be made right with God. You'll be made righteous by the King of righteousness. His righteousness will be uh, given to you, and you will have the beautiful gift of eternal life. Um, through Jesus Christ. And I think you've got a good uh, illustration, a story about uh, a king's ransom that would be a good way to kind of finish us up here. Sure. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, the Bible says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom. Now, a ransom is a price paid to purchase someone's freedom. In 1193, the English King Richard I, also known as Richard the Lionheart, He was returning from leading a crusade to the Holy Land, and he returned through Europe. Leopold V captured him in Austria. The Holy Roman Emperor demanded a ransom for Richard's release. The price was to be 150,000 marks, equal to three tons of silver. This was an enormous ransom demand. But the people of England so loved their king They submitted to extra taxation, and many nobles donated their fortunes for Richard's release. After many months, the money was raised, and King Richard returned to England. That's where we get the expression, a king's ransom. But to us, the term a king's ransom could better be applied to the tremendous price Jesus, the king of kings, paid for our sins on the cross. This king wasn't being ransomed. He paid the ransom so we as sinners can be set free. It is the most expensive ransom in the history of mankind. A ransom is something that is paid to provide for the release of someone who is held captive, as I said. And Jesus paid our ransom to free us from our sin, death, and hell. Clearly, Jesus paid the ransom for our lives to God. That ransom was his own life, the shedding of his own blood, a sacrifice. There is, in fact, a ransom text in the Bible that gives us a clue as to whom is being paid the ransom. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, 
Paul writes, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The context of this passage shows Christ as the mediator, not between men and the devil, or between God and the devil, but between men and God. It would seem from the construction of this text that the ransom is paid by the Son of God to God the Father. As Jesus becomes the ransoming mediator between God and men, making atonement for men to God. And of course, we see the foundation of this truth in Psalm 49, verse 7. Here the Bible says, None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. Here the ransom price of man's life is said to be owed to God. Due to his sacrificial death, each person on earth has the opportunity to accept that gift of atonement and be forgiven by God. For without his death, God's law would still need to be satisfied by our own death. That feeds right into what you were saying about what Jesus did for us, Matt. That's exactly right. Well, Dad, uh, we're going to wrap up here. And uh, to answer Pilate's question, uh, Jesus is is a king. Uh, but again, he's not just a king. He is the king. And in the uh, words of the late, great S.M. Lockridge, that's my king. I wonder, do you know him? Yes, out of here, Dad. All right. Lord, we we love you. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for you loving us enough to send your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to this sin-cursed, cruel world. You sent him on a mission, and that mission was to live a perfect life, and as God and man fully, to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that he was the perfect substitute, having no sin himself, or if he had sin, he could not have been a perfect substitute. He laid down his life to pay the penalty for sin that we owe. He paid the ransom to you as our mediator, that we might, if we put our trust in what he did, be forgiven of our sin as we cling to him, and the atonement that he made be forgiven and have our sins washed away. And thank you, Lord, that, that you confirmed what he did on the cross when you raised Jesus back from the dead for all to be able to see, and that through his resurrection it gives us the hope, those of us that have trusted Christ, of our own future resurrection one day. Now, God, we pray that for those that are lost that might be listening to this podcast, that they might see that, Lord, the ransom's been paid. They just must accept what Jesus did on their behalf. And I pray that they'll do that today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bonfire Podcast. We encourage you to subscribe wherever you stream your podcast content. Also, be sure to rate us on iTunes and Facebook so that others will know about the podcast. If you have a question that you'd like to see us address on an episode, feel free to email us at bonefireministries at gmail.com.